The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Investors waking up to new recession warning signs after that white-hot inflation read just yesterday. Futures right now showing some negativity. Growing expectations now for a major 100 basis point or one full percentage point rate hike at the FOMC meeting later on this month. What it means for your money, that's coming up ahead. The crypto winter takes yet another victim. This time, it's one's high-flying crypto lender Celsius filing for, yes, Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Plus, Netflix chooses a new partner for its upcoming ad-supported streaming service. And then later on, President Biden kicking off his Mideast tour in Israel before his all-important face-to-face in Saudi Arabia tomorrow. A live report from the region coming up ahead. It is Thursday, July 14, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off the hour with U.S. futures right now pointing towards a lower open. You can see the Dow is implied lower by roughly 325 points. The S&P 500 down by about 46 at the opening bell, and the Nasdaq implied lower by 125 points. So, again, a lot of negativity, at least to start right now, if these futures moves hold into regular cash equities trading. This is all after the Dow and the S&P 500 just yesterday extended their losing streaks to four straight sessions. The major averages all down so far this week, with the Nasdaq leading that downside group with a more than 3% loss just since Monday alone. Again, all of this after yesterday's read on consumer prices. That CPI showing the biggest jump since 1981 and growing odds the Fed will implement a 100 basis point or one full percentage point rate hike after its two-day policy meeting later on this month. Now, in the bond market, continue to watch that spread between the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield and the two-year Treasury note yield, because that difference is now at its widest since the year 2000, and often a major early indicator for a possible recession. So again, the difference here, 10-year note yields, 2.97%, shorter-term two-year note yields already at 3.2%. So that inversion, again, something to watch. We are also watching oil prices very closely with U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate right now, WTI, below $100 a barrel. Those futures for WTI crude down about 3%, $93.51. Ice Brent crude futures, $97.22, 2.5% declines there. And NAT gas prices just about three-quarters of 1% lower, 6.64, the last trade there. Also in cryptocurrencies, we are seeing in Bitcoin and Ether at least some stability on a relative basis. In fact, upward price moves for uh, Bitcoin. You can see 19,770 up of one half of 1%. It's now just drifted slightly below that 20,000 mark. It was up above that earlier. Ether prices up one half of 1%, $1,084.52. And many of the smaller to- coins and tokens are actually lower on the session. 
Let's get a check now on the early action in Europe and our own Juliana Tattlebaum. She is live in London with our newsroom latest. Good morning, Juliana. Dom, great to see you. European equity markets are extending losses, a downstart to today's trading session. It is red across the board. We are seeing some more resilience in the German market than in broader Europe, but we have seen some underperformance recently. So just a little bit of a catch-up trade there. The CAC 40 over in France down 1% here in the UK. FTSE 100 down about eight-tenths of a percent. Just moments ago, the European Commission came out with their new growth forecast. They have cut their growth forecast for this year and next, but still looking pretty pretty optimistic. They're looking at a 1.4% growth next year, 2.6% growth this year. But it is really Italy that is the focus for European trade this morning. The market is down more than 2%. The Italian banks are selling off and the bond yields in Italy are rising. All of this as the political situation becomes a lot more tenuous. We are seeing uh, the ruling coalition risk collapse. All eyes are on Italy and we're seeing a pretty big market reaction. From a sector perspective, this is what the split looks like. You've got at the bottom of the board, Real estate down 2%, oil and gas, telecoms, basic resources. We are seeing a little bit more resilience in media and travel and leisure. That sector bouncing about 1%. Dom, we'll just give you a quick check at yields in Europe. I mentioned the rise we're seeing in European uh, bond yields, but specifically Italian bond yields. We're trading up nearly 3.5%. So a lot of focus on the political situation in Italy and all of this in the context of a European central bank, which is trying to raise interest rates. The risk of Italian bond yields rising was already there and now it's becoming even more prominent. Back over to you. So many variables to account for. Juliana Tettelbaum live in London. Thank you very much for that. To some of this morning's top corporate stories and Contessa Brewer is here with those. Good morning, Contessa. Hello, Dominic. Nice to see you. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway not done yet, buying up more shares of Occidental Petroleum in recent days. According to new filings, Berkshire bought 4.3 million more shares of the oil company, paying $250 million over the past three days. This latest purchase brings Berkshire's total Oxy investment to just north of 179 million shares or a 19.2 percent stake in the company. Japanese electronics giant Panasonic selecting the state of Texas for a multi-billion dollar battery mega factory. Once that's complete, the plant would produce electric vehicle batteries for Tesla and other automakers. The choice to build in Kansas comes five months after state lawmakers rushed to approve a taxpayer-funded incentive package of as much as $1 billion to attract the company and the promise thousands of jobs that come with it. United Airlines and its pilots are heading back to the negotiating table for a new round of contract talks. The United branch of the Airline Pilots Association said yesterday the agreement that they made a deal to fell short of some pilots' expectations. The tentative agreement, which included a 14 percent pay raise within 18 months, was first unveiled June 24th. Voting by rank-and-file pilots originally was set to close Friday. The real question here, Domin, you can see uh, United Airlines down a percent in extended trading. What does this do for the other airlines that were looking for this deal to sort of set the standard for their own renegotiations? And, uh, and of course, that airline business right now, you can see by the charts here, not having a very good time with regard to their financials so far. So we'll watch whether or not this has another effect on that already lagging airline trade. Contessa Brewer, thank you very much for that. We'll see you later on. At this hour, sure. President Biden is holding a bilateral meeting right now with Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid as part of his first trip to the Middle East as president. Biden heads to Saudi Arabia tomorrow for more negotiations as he looks to reset relations 
with that nation amid the global oil crisis. And it is a crisis right now. NBC News' Raf Sanchez joins us now from Jerusalem. Raf, good morning to you or good afternoon in many ways. How many times can we talk about this notion that this Middle East portion of President Biden's agenda is so key, not just Israel, but Iran and Saudi Arabia as well? It's absolutely key. President Biden coming to the region with oil prices high, Americans paying very high prices at the pump, and European energy supplies threatened by Russia with the war in Ukraine. So the president is here hoping that the Saudis, the other OPEC nations, will pump more oil. Not totally clear, Dom, if that will directly lead to lower gas prices at the pump for American drivers. There's issues with American refineries. But that is one of the cornerstones of his trip here. As you said, he is currently meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid. And that meeting is focused on one of the other main issues, which is Iran. That is absolutely top of the Israeli agenda. President Biden yesterday took a look at a very advanced Israeli missile defense system, which is going to use lasers to shoot down incoming rockets, incoming missiles. He also told Israeli media that he is prepared, if necessary, to use force to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. But there are profound disagreements between the Biden administration and Israel about the way forward on Iran. The president would still like to try to revive that 2015 nuclear agreement, which was negotiated under President Obama before President Trump took the United States out of it. One of the big sticking points there is the U.S. has designated Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. The Iranians demanding the Guard be taken off that list. The president says he will not do that, even if it jeopardizes the talks themselves. The talks have been dragging on for months. It is not clear if they are going anywhere. But the Israelis say that 2015 nuclear agreement is weak and it paves the way for the Iranians to one day get a nuclear bomb. Another big issue, we are expecting to see Israel and Saudi Arabia take some steps towards normalization while the president is here in the region. Dom. So, so Raf, can, can I kind of maybe stay on that point a little bit more here? Saudi Arabia is a key focus, not just here in America, but for many oil-consuming countries around the world, given what's happening with oil prices right now and the Russia-Ukraine war. What exactly can we expect out of the meeting that we expect President Biden to have with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia? We already know that they are not going to have a press conference after that. What exactly is the at least expectation for what President Biden can extract or get out of this particular meeting? Well, for starters, this is not a meeting that President Biden wanted to have. He spent the last two years basically freezing Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman out, doing basically everything he could to try to avoid contact with him. The CIA, of course, says the Crown Prince ordered the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The president, as we were saying, is hoping that the Saudis will announce that they are going to start pumping more oil. Unlikely that that announcement will happen while the president is in Jeddah, but they're hoping to see something over the next couple of weeks, maybe next couple of months. There's also the war in Yemen, that there is a ceasefire there right now. The U.S. has played a role in brokering that ceasefire. The president wants that to be extended. He wants ideally to get to some kind of long-term peace deal. But from the Saudi perspective, 
their main goal is the meeting itself. MBS has been absolutely toxic on the world stage for the last couple of years following Khashoggi's murder. And he sees a meeting with the president of the United States as a ticket out of the diplomatic cold. He sees it as a step towards rehabilitating his image on the international stage. Dom. All right. Raf Sanchez in Jerusalem. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Back to the markets now with U.S. stock futures pointing to some sharper losses at the opening bell. But major attention this morning on that difference between two-year note yields and 10-year note yields, that so-called two-year, 10-year spread. The fact that it is inverted, it's now, by the way, the widest level in 22 years. Could it be a huge recession signal for investors? Joining me now is Brian Levitt, global market strategist, North America at Invesco. Brian, I I wonder, this is a huge, huge point for many traders and investors right now, whether or not the yield curve, whichever part you look at, twos, tens, three months, tens, fives, thirties, whether or not it still is as reliable a recession indicator as it has been in years past, given the massive amounts of central bank intervention over the last decade plus. Yeah, I think we ignore the bond market at our own peril. Um, Of all the indicators, the bond market tends to get it right most often. And so what is happening here is it's a bond market that's pricing in a lot of policy tightening, but policy tightening that's coming with a slowdown in the economy. And so that's a that's a troublesome position to be in. So I would take it very seriously. Now, you make the point that the three-month tenure has not inverted. That's the one we should focus on more. But we listen to the Federal Reserve. They're likely to invert that um, within months. So it's not, a, um, it's not a timing tool, but it certainly is a harbinger of future economic woes. So if it's a harbinger of future economic woes, is it fair or not fair to say that when the Nasdaq pulls back by 35 to 38 percent from record highs, that it is expecting already that recession and that the bounce we've been seeing is what we see on the other end of a possible recession? Well, we're probably not there yet. And and let's look at it from the S&P 500. If you look at the average return of the S&P 500 during the last 10 recessions, our peak to trough associated with recessions, it's negative 31.9%. The S&P peak to trough has done 22.4%. So peak to trough. So we were getting there. Uh, Most of the move in the S&P 500 has been a valuation adjustment as interest rates have moved higher uh, now we need to assess what a slowdown in the economy means for earnings. So, you know, for investors, it's probably too late to get bearish. Uh, trying to time these things is going to be hard. But in order to get to a market bottom, um, you probably need to adjust for earnings and you need to see inflationary pressures come down and the Federal Reserve to provide greater clarity on, uh, on, on where the terminal rate is going to be for Fed funds. Are you seeing some of those inflationary pressures come down from a forward-looking perspective? We've made a huge point, as have many experts, pundits and whatnot, over the past several weeks and months, that some of this economic data, like PPI, CPI, GDP, are backward-looking. Is the forward-looking stuff better or worse? Better. I mean, goods inflation is, is going to moderate here. Um, we've seen commodity costs come down. Shipping costs have come down. Actually, what's very interesting is the bond market's expectation for inflation. If you looked at a one-year inflation break-even, which is the difference between a nominal treasury yield and a treasury inflation-protected security, 
If you looked at it in May, the one-year inflation break, even the bond market's expectation was over 6%. As of yesterday, it was below 4%. So that's a huge move. The 10-year is very much within the Fed's comfort zone, the 10-year inflation expectation. So inflation will moderate, Dom. The problem is it's not happening fast enough. And you have a Federal Reserve that's going to be basically driving, uh, looking through the rearview mirror, raising interest rates into a slowdown, which is typically how cycles end. And um, so is there a path to a to a soft landing? There is. But it's it's always been narrow. And, and yesterday's CPI report makes it even more narrow. And Brian, before we let you go really quickly, do you expect that the Fed will raise interest rates by a full percentage point at its July meeting? It seems likely. And, you know, for investors, you talk about what's been priced in. I mean, the the market gets ahead of these things and the market expects the Fed to get the the funds rate to three and a half percent by the end of the year. So, again, there's your inverted yield curve between very short rates and 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 long rates. Um, But interestingly enough, the bond market's starting to price in a Fed that's going to have to ease in 2023. So, you know, for investors, it's policy tightening, it's slowdown. But as we talked about, we've priced in a good amount of it. There'll be another side to this, but there may be some more challenging days ahead. All right, Brian Levitt and Invesco, thank you very much. We appreciate it. When we come back on the show, the crypto winter takes another victim as firms across the industry rush for financial lifelines. Plus, big banks kicking off earnings season. We'll see if rising interest rates, like Brian just spoke about, are helping bottom lines and or their share prices. And then later on, an historic move in the New York City rental market. The staggering stat you have to see to believe. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, a developing story within the crypto industry as firms across that business rush for financial lifelines in the wake of the recent crypto winter. The latest embattled crypto lending giant Celsius starting the process for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection proceeding, the move coming just about a month after the firm froze customer accounts blaming, quote-unquote, extreme market conditions. CNBC.com technology reporter Mackenzie Sagalos joins us now with this and more on that story. Mac, I wonder how much of this is going to have an even more chilling effect 
for that crypto winter, how much more downside could there be for the entire business? Yeah, that's a huge concern because Celsius filing for bankruptcy definitely wasn't a surprise. I mean, once a platform suspends withdrawals for customers, freezing all of its users' crypto cash, it is typically all over. But just because this wasn't a shock doesn't mean that it wasn't a really big deal for the industry. Celsius Celsius was once one of the largest players in the crypto lending space. We're talking more than $8 billion in loans to clients and almost $12 billion in assets under management. And remember, a lot of your mom and pop investor types were wrapped up in this. Celsius said it had 1.7 million customers as of last month. Now, the reason that the platform was able to capture so many users was because of its almost unbelievable returns. Its interest-bearing accounts were really attractive. Yields were as high as 17%. And, well, returns like that, they're not real. We know of at least one lawsuit where Celsius is being accused of functioning like a Ponzi scheme. Dom? So, so, I mean, Kenzie, I, 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 you have this kind of alongside the Celsius meltdown. We're also seeing three Eros Capital, right? Mm-hmm. Three AC. That's the, that's the one you're hearing about a lot more. Uh, a major crypto hedge fund that used to be a major one. It's filing for bankruptcy. That's had a knock-on effect to even more crypto players as well. So three AC, three Eros Capital, Celsius. What's the latest on three Eros? That's arguably been maybe some of the bigger influence on confidence in crypto. Yeah, I mean, it seems as though all roads lead back to Three Arrows Capital. And keep in mind, this was supposed to be the adult in the room, Dom. The fund was around for a decade. Its co-founders were former Credit Suisse traders. They had $10 billion in assets under management. But now 3AC is in bankruptcy court. The fund's risky trading strategy relied heavily on leverage, and they broke under pressure as crypto prices plunged, leaving 3AC unable to repay lenders. And as you said, it's a sort of perfect example of the dangers of the crypto contagion effect. Already, some of those 3AC lenders have filed for bankruptcy, and things aren't looking good from here. Even though the fund voluntarily filed for bankruptcy, lawyers representing the court-assigned liquidators say that the founders are apparently missing. And I've been poring over these court documents filed in the Southern District of New York, and they also say that the fund hasn't begun to cooperate with the liquidation process in any meaningful manner. So that means that there is no cash to pay back the company's lenders right now. All right. A fascinating story there for sure. Mackenzie Sagalos, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dom. Still on deck for the show. It's been a rough ride for big bank stocks in 2022. But could the second quarter results help them turn a positive corner? Find out when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Right now, the markets are showing some signs of weakness as traders and investors across Wall Street and global markets try to ascertain whether or not there is a bigger threat right now, clear and presently, from inflation or perhaps the threat of recession in the days, weeks, and months down the line. If you look at the S&P 500 futures chart just over the last six or so hours, you can see we've drifted now kind of towards the lows of the session right now. The S&P futures now down just about one and a quarter percent, implying, again, a decently lower open. But we have been seeing some at least buying interest during the course of the regular trading session on some of these weaker days, even after a hot inflation print like we've seen. So that hot inflation print, whether or not it has been peaked or whether or not inflation has peaked or not remains to be seen. And not a lot of folks out there are making the gutsy call to call it a top. But some of the markets have already been indicating that maybe inflation has now given way to a more recessionary or economic slowdown narrative. And I'll show you three charts to kind of show you what I'm talking about. Gold prices historically for hundreds of years have been viewed as a hedge against inflation. Well, if you look at the gold ETF, the Spider Gold ETF ticker GLD, since March, we've seen a decent pullback by around 16 or 17 percent from the highs here. So gold has lost a little bit of at least luster in terms of an inflation hedge. Maybe that's because inflation is viewed to have been peaked. Also, check out what's happening with other parts of the market, like real estate, often viewed as a hedge against inflation, a real asset, property values. The Vanguard real estate ETF, ticker VNQ, has also seen a market decline, due in no small part to rising interest rates, increasing the cost of financing and the cost of ownership for real estate. So has inflation, again, peaked there by that indicator? And then another one to watch as well is agricultural commodities. We all see it in grocery stores, food inflation. So what happens with grains and some of the other agricultural commodities? Well, the Invesco DB Agriculture ETF, ticker DBA, is right now, you can see they're also in a fairly decent medium-term downtrend ever since about the spring. So whether or not those indicators on commodities, hard or soft, indicate inflation has peaked remains to be seen. We'll keep an eye on those. Well, straight ahead on the show, new developments in the Biden administration's effort to push $52 billion worth in microchip funding. Can it pass the finish line? Arlan Moy is live with a report from our nation's capital. Straight ahead. Stay right here. We'll be right back after this. Investors facing new recession warning signs after yesterday's white-hot read on inflation. What the Fed is now considering more than ever ahead of its policy meeting later on this month. Shares of big banks bruised and battered so far in 2022, but earnings are on deck from some of the biggest names in the industry looking to turn the corner today. Plus, growing momentum on Capitol Hill around a plan to send billions of dollars to the U.S. computer chip industry. How the White House plans to push it over the finish line it's Thursday, July 14th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan on this morning here for Thursday. Let's kick off this half hour with U.S. stock futures pointing to a pretty decent lower open right now. The Dow is implied lower by roughly 300 points. The S&P lower again by just about a little over a percent as well. And the Nasdaq down by a percent. So broad based declines overall for the major indices. This is after yesterday's 41-year high read on consumer inflation and fresh hawkish comments from the likes of Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic saying every policy action is in play right now, including 
a 100 basis point rate hike. Also, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester saying anything less than a 75 basis point hike this month would be insufficient. Now, in the bond market, watching that inversion between the two-year Treasury note yield and the 10-year, it's widest level, by the way, in 22 years, and it's often seen as an early indicator for recession. So that 10-year note yield, just for reference, 2.96%. Meanwhile, the two-year note yield, the shorter-term duration one, is 3.2%. Very widespread and inversions. We'll keep an eye on that. Let's now get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Contessa Brewer is back with those. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Dom. Nice to see you. Netflix says it's selecting Microsoft as its technology and sales partner for a planned and ad-supported subscription service. Netflix had said in April it would introduce a new, lower-priced version of its service to try to attract more subscribers. The announcement, as Netflix looks to bounce back from its first reported subscriber loss in more than a decade, as you can see, it's down near a percent in extended trading. Tesla AI and autopilot chief Andre Karpathy says he's no longer working for the electric vehicle maker, announcing his exit in a tweet late yesterday. The executive exit follows the closure of a Tesla office in San Mateo, California, where data teams were helping to improve the company's driver assistance technology. Since June 2021, Tesla vehicles have accounted for nearly 70 percent of reported crashes involving advanced driver assistant systems in the U.S. That stock off 1.18%. And the FDA authorizing Novavax's two-dose COVID-19 vaccine for adults ages 18 and over. The vaccine is the fourth COVID shot to receive emergency approval in the United States since the pandemic began. Let's take a look at Novavax shares now down nearly 2% in the early morning trading. Dom? All right, Contessa Brewer, thank you very much for those headlines. To earnings this morning as banks kick things off today, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley stepping up to the plate first. The stocks have been under pressure year-to-date following back-to-back quarters of weaker-than-expected results. Inflation concerns could also start weighing on consumer spending and the bank's bottom lines. Let's get some insight on what Wall Street is expecting from Ken Leon, Director of Equity Research at CFRA. I, Ken, I, I got to wonder, this bank trade has been talked about as a comeback trade for months, quarters, and maybe even years now. What's it going to take to get this trade going? Well, good morning, Don, and you're absolutely right. And the narrative has changed. Uh, we're at an inflection point <clears throat> where perhaps the economy is going to put pressure on the bank's And the question is for investors is where the bull is going over the next six to 12 months, not where we are. And and we're going to shed light on that with J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley today, uh, particularly on loan activity, the capital markets. And all of a sudden, you know, instead of releasing reserves, banks are going to be building up uh, for credit losses potentially next year. Okay, so if that's the case, let's take a look at the, the, the big results coming out. From J.P. Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley, you could argue both are bellwethers, kind of indicators of the health of the overall business in the respective side of things. What exactly would you be looking for out of J.P. Morgan Chase's results and Morgan Stanley that would give you confidence that maybe things are better than feared? Well, first of all, they're going to say, raising their hands, that um, right now loan activity is good for the consumer and for commercial and uh, credit quality is still good, but the question is the storm over the horizon really related to the pressure of inflation, higher rates, uh, and potentially 
uh, rising uh, balances that maybe some consumers just can't pay off their credit cards anymore. We're already seeing that in the economic data. Um, and I think they're going to skirt the issue of the capital markets and hope for a better day in the second half of this year because capital markets, particularly investment banking, was down over 30 percent on investment banking fees. So, Ken, to kind of put a cap on this, if you take a look at the overall picture for these financials and the earnings season that's coming up, you look at the research, you do a lot of it over, over there at CFRA, which part of the banking financial services complex has the most promise given the backdrop that you just mentioned? We really think it's, it's still related to lending. And if the volume can hold up because rates are rising, that's going to boost what's called net interest income. Um, but analyst estimates are way too high. I, th I think the real secret to the story for investors is the bank stocks are cheap. They're trading at all-time lows on price to net tangible book value. And I mentioned building up reserves. If we have a soft landing next year or a shallow recession, all of a sudden the banks again will reverse those reserves and boost earnings. But that's really for a different time in the story. Right now, it's a question of what's ahead for the second half of this year. And, and Ken, before we let you go, when you look at the research and all the companies you cover, including those banks, is the base case that you have for a recession in the coming months or not? We are looking for significantly slower growth, possibly recession, and estimates are coming down. But the market has already reflected that in stock prices. So if you see even any a modest gain from a bearish view, even with 100 basis points rise you know, from the Fed on the next case, um, these stocks are going to hold up and possibly go higher. So you know, we're positive on the bank stocks with a buy on Morgan Stanley today. We do have a hold on J.P. Morgan. All right. Ken Leon at CFRA. Thank you very much and good luck this season. Thank you, sir. The Biden administration is ramping up pressure on Congress to pass the $52 billion worth of funding for the semiconductor business as Republicans claim the measure is, quote unquote, stuck. But new movement overnight that could help push it to the finish line is out. And our Alan Moy joins us now with more on those stories and headlines. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Dom. Well, there's growing momentum on Capitol Hill around a plan that would separate billions of dollars for the chip industry from a bigger package of bills that's focused on American innovation and competition. Now, this move could unlock that $52 billion in tax incentives and grants to shore up semiconductor manufacturing right here in the U.S., and allow Congress to pass it all by the end of the month. This does have bipartisan support, but it's gotten stuck as Republicans and Democrats clash over the broader legislation and other unrelated spending bills. Now, last night, the Senate got a classified briefing from top Biden administration officials on the national security risk of the chip shortage. After it was over, lawmakers said there's new urgency to act. If we don't act now, you know, a delay of months could turn into a delay for years because even when we have this additional government assistance, it only covers about 10 to 20 percent of the, the costs. 
They said it's not just China, but Japan, Germany, South Korea. They're all already trying to lure chip makers through government programs. Companies like Intel, Micron and Lockheed have been lobbying hard for the U.S. to step up its game. Now, top Senate Republican Mitch McConnell said that he is willing to support this narrow approach. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo told reporters that the White House would get behind it as well. So now the question is, could this plan pass the House? That chamber will get its own classified briefing this afternoon. So, Don, we'll see if that changes the dynamic on Capitol Hill. Back over to you. Elon, I I wonder, you talk about kind of like the, the narrow view that could get Republicans on board with this particular approach, a more surgical maybe kind of approach to this. What exactly then would they be leaving by the wayside if they are to take that particular more tailored approach to this? Yes, yeah, potentially a whole lot. One of the big sticking points in these negotiations over the past year have been how the House and Senate handle the trade provisions that have been in this bill. Everything from you know, to exclusions to the tariffs on Chinese goods to potentially a new process for the U.S. to review the way that U.S. companies invest in other countries, particularly in China and in Russia. So there is a lot that lawmakers um, have been grappling with over these past few months. And now they're thinking about maybe they should just table that debate so that they can get this money out to the chip industry, because that has really been the engine of this bill all along. All right. Elon Moy out in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on today. Coming up on the show, President Biden on the first leg of his first trip to the Middle East as president. What's at stake in Israel and what should investors expect when he arrives in Saudi Arabia tomorrow? But first, as we head out to break some of your top trending stories, the average monthly rent for a Manhattan apartment has surpassed $5,000, $5,000 for the first time ever, with brokers saying demand and prices are likely to head higher into the fall. According to a report from Miller Samuel and Douglas Elliman, the average apartment rent in June was a record $5,058. That's up 29% year over year. So much for the COVID pandemic wiping out New York City. Looks like Richard Branson, by the way, has a new passion. That's retail traders. News this morning that the British billionaire and Virgin Galactic founder is backing Robin Hood European competitor Lightyear as part of a fresh $25 million funding round. Lightyear plans to launch its trading app in 19 more countries this week, including Germany, France, and Italy. And Hyundai unveiling its latest electric vehicle, the iconic 6EV. It's the chipmaker's third Pure Vision EV offering behind the Kona and Ionic 5. The company says it expects to begin production in the third quarter with U.S. sales kicking off in the first quarter of next year. Hyundai is, by the way, the second largest seller of EVs in America, trailing only, yes, Tesla. We are back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. President Biden is continuing his Middle East trip with meetings with Israel's prime minister earlier this hour. And we are expecting more comments from both men at any moment now, as you're seeing there. That's a live shot straight from Jerusalem. We will be monitoring that event and bring you the latest and headlines there as they warrant. But the biggest attention for investors will likely be Biden's face-to-face meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, later on tomorrow. Joining me now is Jimmy Pethokoukis, American Enterprise Institute economic policy analyst. He's also a CNBC contributor. Uh, uh, Jimmy, there's been a lot made about this notion that President Biden has in the past not been so friendly to Saudi Arabia with regard to a lot of different things. But now going over there for a face to face discussion, 
to basically ask them to pump more oil. Is that how the market is seeing this particular meeting? Yeah, I think the market is seeing this as a very sort of real politic approach uh, to U.S. foreign relations. As you mentioned, President uh, very during the, during his campaign, very tough on Saudi Arabia, talking about basically turning into a pariah state. Uh, that talk is gone because of higher U.S. inflation, the war in Ukraine, high oil prices. And they would, yes, they would love for Saudi Arabia to pump more oil. Now, as, we, as we've seen, probably the biggest factor affecting oil prices is what's going to happen in the U.S. global economy. And I think expectations should be muted as far as what the president might get. I'm not sure how much spare capacity as well as sustained spare capacity Saudi Arabia has. Uh, but, you know, if the president can come out with something, that's a win. And frankly, for any president with low approval ratings, getting out of the country and visiting other countries, that's like from Presidenting 101. This, Jimmy, I, I mean, if you take a look at the way that the story is played out with regard to fossil fuels versus clean energy, there has obviously been a push by many parts of the Democratic Party to kind of get towards more renewable energy. And, and, and perhaps that is the future. But isn't this now a stark reminder that fossil fuels may be with us for quite some time? Do you think this changes the way that this administration will view the energy sector overall and its importance to the U.S. economy in what can be considered maybe a bridge year or so or a bridge number of years between now and clean energy? You know, I think maybe I think people who people who take that position take a more realistic view of what solar and wind can do versus what we still need fossil fuels for, what we, st- and what we might need nuclear energy or geothermal energy for. Yes, this, this helps that case. But the forces within the Democratic Party who are so committed to this idea that we, are, we need to accelerate this energy transition are super, super strong. And I think those forces will, will, will continue to have the upper hand. Um, but yet reality continues to intercede. That reality is when we have high oil prices, people begin to notice energy a lot more and they begin to notice that we don't have cheap energy, uh, right now. So many polls and surveys across America over the last several months here have indicated that gasoline prices are the foremost concern for Americans about the economy. So Jimmy, I think that the evidence points to what you're saying as well. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. We'll see you later on, sir. Thanks, All right. On deck for the show, futures extending their losses across the board, as you can see there. But we're off the worst levels of the session. Our next guest says she's still putting money to work. We'll have that story when we come back after this break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A busy day ahead, chock full of economic and earnings releases at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. Look for weekly jobless claims as well as the June producer price index. Inflation at the wholesale business level. Earnings season officially kicks off in about an hour or so with the second quarter results from J.P. Morgan Chase and also Morgan Stanley. We'll also hear from food giant ConAgra today. Also expecting fresh comments, by the way, from Fed Governor Christopher Waller speaking at 11 a.m. Eastern time. A lot of potential catalysts today. Investors now have a lot on their plate to digest. Sky high inflation still stoking worries. The Fed will have to act more aggressively, maybe even going as far as a full one percentage point, 100 basis point rate hike later on this month. Also, growing recession fears and how that's factoring into companies' earnings forecasts and investment plans. 
So amidst all of that, let's bring in Sylvia Jablonski, co-founder and CEO and chief investment officer at Defiance ETFs. Sylvia, I just reeled off a laundry list of issues and concerns and catalysts. So on balance, is this market still one where you can put money to work? Good morning, Dom. Yeah, you just you just listed off what sounds like the perfect storm, actually. Right. Uh, But the good news about that is that the market has readjusted to that and the market is largely um, reevaluated and revalued. So you have multiples down from 21 to about 16. You know, we had um, S&P down about 24 percent at the at the lowest point. And and now it's kind of around 20 percent. NASDAQ hitting that 30% mark. I think that a lot of these stocks are now actually on sale and they're in a tradable level. I can't call the bottom, but the way that I look at this is like when I see stocks on sale 20 to 30% off of all time highs and I have a longer term outlook, you know, I'm not using that cash to live on. I'm not really sweating what's going on now. I can't call the bottom. I can't call the top of inflation, but I do start to see some things that make me a little bit interested. So commodity prices are budging by about 20% or so. You know, it's a backward, it's, it's a backward looking number. So that hasn't priced in, you know, oil and gas, um, rents, mortgages, things like that are coming down a little bit. Um, you know, all time terrible sentiment with Michigan, but you have consumer spending, you have strong balance sheets, strong jobs. So that leads me to believe that, you know, maybe we don't get that full on recession. We could get a technical recession. We could get a light version of it. But I think that overall, the stock market has done a lot of that work. And when you think about bull markets and when they start, actually 35% of a bull market happens within the first two months. And it's usually before you've actually called that we're in a bull market. So, you know, I'm okay being a little bit early. I'm okay dollar cost averaging in. Again, I'm long-term, so I'm just sort of shaking this off for now as as, as noise. I okay. think that there are great opportunities out okay. there. Okay, so he, here's what I'll point out. Fresh news right now coming from Bank of America's chief equity and quant strategist, Savita Subramanian, who just put out a note to clients saying, quote, we lower our year end target for the S&P 500 to thirty six hundred from forty five hundred. That's a twenty five percent decline. Thirty one percent is the average decline amid recessions in our fair value model. We increase the normalized equity risk premium by one hundred and fifty basis points in a move similar to that of the mild early 1990s recession. From our S&P 500 floor assumption, we could now see a 3,000 to 3,200 before year end. So you've got now B of A lowering their target to a street low, 3,600 for the S&P 500. This is something that plays out a lot more in sentiment, right, Sylvia? When you've got now Wall Street analysts lowering their expectations across the board, even for the stock market as a whole, let alone earnings estimates coming down, possibly given a recessionary narrative. You know, it, it, it does. And I think all of this feeds into this idea of complete capitulation and pullback in the markets. But what it also does is it sets investors up for, for long term, because if you get, you know, whether or not we stay around the levels we're at now or we, you know, we sort of lose that eight to 10 percent, as, as she's sort of suggesting there in the S&P 500 to hit those you know, proper recession levels. Um, I, I think, you know, either way, we sort of know what's ahead of us, right? We expect this earnings season to be pretty poor. I know it hasn't all been repriced, and I think it's reasonable to sort of wait it out if you're nervous about getting in, you know, during or before. But I think once we get past earnings season, we start getting some some lighter inflation reads. You know, the Fed's going to do their thing, whether it's 75 bips or 1%. Eventually it starts. You know, if you look at the two and the 10-year, 
um, that we're, we're pricing a potential uh, rate cut in 2023. So, you know, a, a lot of this, I think, is going to be behind us sooner than later. And I think that in terms of equity prices, most of the work has been done. You know, even if we look at those all-time lows that, that some of the analysts are predicting, the equity market has done most of the work already. So I do think it's reasonable to scoop up um, equities dollar cost average and along the way. All right. Sylvia Jablonski over to Fines ETFs. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Futures right now are lower, but off their worst levels of the session so far. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.